Join me in chapter 2, verse 19. Um, tonight, well, let's just preach. Here we go. Philippians 2, 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I'm the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. For those of you who've been with us for a few weeks, where's Paul writing from? The prison. Anybody want to take a stab at what city he's in? Where's the prison? Rome. Y'all are tentative tonight. And it's like, I don't want to answer loudly in case I answer wrongly, so um, I get it. Uh, Paul's in Rome. He's in prison. No, not for crimes, but for false trumped-up charges that led to him appealing to Caesar because that was the only place he was going to come out alive because in his uh, uh, homeland in, in, in Jerusalem, that they would have killed him um, if they had tried him by Jewish courts. He would have been known as a blasphemer. He would have been known as um, one who um, railed against Caesar and preaching another king, this king named Jesus. And so Paul appealed to Caesar, and so they took him by boat into Rome, and he is, he is under house arrest, basically. Um, well, actually, he's in, under full arrest here. He's chained to Roman soldiers, and he is um, well into his second year, maybe his third year, of losing his freedom. And so what he's doing is he's taking these opportunities to write various churches and individuals to be able to encourage them in their faith since he can't be there with them. And so one of the things that he has with the church at Philippi, this is the book of Philippians, and those are the people, the Christians that live in Philippi. One of the things is he has a relationship with them that they actually financially support his missionary endeavors. And what had happened is because he had been incarcerated, and when you're incarcerated in Rome, by the way, um, you have to pay for your own food. You have to pay for your own clothing. If you have sanitary needs, which all human beings do, you have to pay to get those taken care of. And the Romans provided nothing. So if you don't have anybody supporting you, you die a very tragic death in a Roman prison. And so Paul was receiving funding. And we're going to find out that part of this passage I just read deals with the guy who brought him the funding from the Philippian church. And that guy's name is Epaphroditus. This is what I want to talk to you about tonight. I want us to learn about what it means for us as believers and then us as a group of believers, as a local assembly, as a mission base. What does it mean for us to send forth our very best? 
What does that mean for us to release into the kingdom, not the stuff we can afford to do without or not the, you know, the, the, the non-essentials, but what would it mean for a body of believers or an individual Christian to live a pattern of life that releases his or her very best back into the kingdom for the good of other people? Now, it sounds spiritual, but it would probably take only about 10 minutes for me, I won't speak for you, but for me to analyze my heart and say, I actually could be doing a far better job at living that way than I'm currently living. Because the, the tendency is, is our Christianity is there as the hub of our life, but if we're not careful, we focus more on the stuff that's spin around the hub. And what happens in a lot of cases is, is our faith in the kingdom and the Lord tend to get whatever's left over after we're spinning through the rest of life. What we're going to find out is Paul's example, Timothy's example, and Epaphroditus' example motivate us to live like Jesus because all the stuff that Paul has written in the first two chapters has challenged our soul, and now what he's doing is saying, hey, let me tell you about two guys that are actually doing it. And so let's take a look at it, because Paul is not hoarding these two people to himself. Paul is actually sending them out so they can be a blessing to other people. So first of all, go back up into verses 19 through 23, and let's look at Timothy, and I'm just going to call Timothy the proven son. And I'm going to give you a little background with them, but Paul valued Timothy. This is the first thing I want you to know. Look at what he's saying. He's saying to them, to the church at Philippi, I hope in the Lord Jesus. That's just the fancy way of saying, if God is willing, I hope to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. Now watch this. For I have no one like him who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. So I want to I hunker down here for a moment. So again, Paul's in jail, and he's only got a few people that he's close to that are ministering to him. Timothy actually followed Paul to Rome and is ministering to Paul while Paul is incarcerated. And we're going to find out that Paul loves Timothy. They have a very unique, special father-son relationship. But here he just gives you this. He gives this statement over Timothy's life. Paul says, I don't have anybody. We would say it this way. I don't know anybody who will be genuinely concerned for your well-being. Now, why is that important? Because Paul said this, I'm hoping to release Timothy to come and minister to you. Now, let's think logically. I don't want to ask you if you've ever been locked up because you just don't need to raise our hands tonight. Uh, you know my testimony, and I don't know if you know that part of it, but before Jesus, I heard a couple of times the clanging of bars and know what it's like to sleep on an iron cot. And so I know what it's like to be stuck and locked up. Um, Paul had it first, oh, far worse than I did. I always got out in a matter of hours. Paul's going on year three. And when you're there in that kind of situation like Paul's in, any help you can get is precious. It's, it's, it's important. And here is Timothy, one of his favorite people in the world, and Paul is saying, Philippi needs Timothy more than I need Timothy. Philippi can be blessed by Timothy, and it's going to cost me because I don't know anybody like him in Rome who I can send to the church at Philippi that will take care of them. I, I just want us to just, just let that simmer for a moment. Um, I am not saved by works. You're not saved by works. 
God doesn't love me more on my good days than he loves me on my tragic days, my bad days. Um, we don't have a love meter with God that pegs when we're, we're, we're doing good and falls back when we're, you know, struggling a little bit. It's just always at full tilt. That's just the way the Lord loves. He loves full tilt all the time. We are his children. We are, and I'm going to say this, you can search it out for yourself later, but it's true. He loves you as much as he loves his only begotten son, Jesus. You are as acceptable to the Father, if you're in Christ, as his only begotten son, Jesus. Why? Because you're in Jesus. You're loved for Jesus' sake. And Jesus paid a great price to bring us into the grace, the mercy, the love, and the salvation of God through Jesus' uh, suffering. And so the, the, the beauty of it is this, is that when Paul is writing this, He's saying, I'm going to give you the very best I have. And I am motivated by that because I don't, I don't have a Timothy. I don't have somebody that is the only, one of the only people ministering to my needs or anything like that. But I'm not sure if that was my case that I would be that quick to pull the trigger. Now, maybe you're more spiritual than the guy preaching tonight, and I hope that you are, but the reality is when we find something precious and somebody else needs it, we, we tend to default to thinking, is there another way I can keep what I've got and still meet their need? And that was not the spirit of Paul. Paul said, no, I don't want to just give them something. I want to give them my best. And as an apostle, he had the authority to send Timothy wherever God led him to send Timothy. So go down a little bit further. Paul valued Timothy, but Jesus owned Timothy. How do I know that? Look at his testimony in verse 21. Paul said, I, I'm, I'm going to send you Timothy. He'll be genuinely concerned for your welfare because all others, they all, the rest of his acquaintances in Rome, Christians he's talking about, they all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. That's depressing. Paul's in Rome, and there is a church in Rome. And, and he had a decent relationship with many of those Christians in Rome. And the gospel was spreading all throughout Caesar's household. But Paul's already told us in this letter, yeah, there's a lot of preachers out there in Rome. But he's saying this, he's saying, um, yeah, but some of them are preaching for contention. They're wanting to hurt me while I'm locked up. So they were using Paul's disadvantage against him so they could elevate themselves. These were preachers. These were ministers of the gospel. You thought that, you know, pastors and preachers only fell in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and now. No, I mean, there's always been this besmirching of the office of pastor or preacher or prophet. And, and Paul's saying, yeah, I can't send any of them. And he tells us why. He says, yeah, they're actually seeking their own interest and not seeking the interest of Jesus Christ. I don't know the best way to handle this verse, but I just, I just want to remind us because we're, we're living in a day of extremes, extreme theologies and church, extreme philosophies and life, extreme, uh, you know, uh, advancement in, in certain areas. I want to be this kind of Christian. I want to go this direction. I want to do this. I'm, this. I'm this flavor of Christianity. And there's all this stuff out there. And we're, we're living in an ecclesiastical pick and choose generation where we can, we actually, it's like Burger King in the 80s, you know, you, you, whatever way you want it, you get it. And the reality is, is that we need to come back to a place where we have to recognize um, our own interests may not actually be God's interest. 
that, that literally, literally it requires a submissive heart and an attuned ear and a willingness to remain in a posture of surrender to God because God doesn't endorse everything that pops into our head or pops out of our mouth or enters into our lives. And what Paul is saying here is there are a lot of Christians in Rome. Some of them are preachers, but I can't send any of them to you at Philippi. And the reason why is they're living for themselves. That's what he says. It is the cult of self. It is the Caesar of self, the throne of self. And the only way that we ever come to, to recognize whether we have been delivered from that or not is when there is a conflict between uh, self and something else. And Paul's already told us in this, in this uh, book, he said, um, why don't you esteem other people better than you? And you can't do that in the flesh. That has to come through the Spirit. And so... Jesus owned Timothy because Timothy's testimony coming from Paul was, yeah, Timothy's actually sold out to serve Jesus by serving others. I think it's an important thing. Listen, Jesus doesn't need any service. He doesn't. We talk, we've got to serve God. We've got to serve God. I get it. I say that too. But the reality is, is that God was perfectly served by the angelic host long before Adam and Eve ever drew their first breath. And God didn't even really need the angels. I mean, he lets them worship and adore him. The reality is, is God's not up there wringing his hands saying, I don't know how I'm going to get the kingdom finished without these people helping me out. That's just, that's not who he is. But he does let us serve him by serving each other. And if we're really going to be the sons and daughters who also serve the Lord, we don't get to just circumvent people and serve God. We serve God by serving people. And so Timothy had that DNA. Timothy was the kind of guy who said, I have interest. It's not an issue of saying, I don't have any interest. I'm in a state of nirvana with Jesus and nothing matters. Hmm. That's not the way he was living. It wasn't like that. Timothy had to crucify his own interest. And so do you. So do I. That doesn't mean God is a cosmic joy kill who wants to ruin our days by bringing us into this drudgery of always serving others. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm going to tell you the greatest delight in life is when you are so surrendered to the Lord that you see an opportunity to please him and glorify him by serving others. And it's not a drudgery, it's a blessing because you realize that Jesus is actually working in you, for you, and through you into the life of somebody else. And Timothy had... Um, had come to that place where, where that was his life. A little bit further, because I want to get to Epaphroditus too. Um, time had proven Timothy. One of the things about Wednesday nights is we don't have a whole lot of young people in here. Don't be offended, because some of y'all are younger than me, but this is not typically. Our young adults are over at Forerunner, and that's by design for them to have, uh, you know, gospel encounters and just the, their own kind of uh, camaraderie together, fellowship, koinonia. Um, but I wish they were here tonight because this is especially important to young Christians. What is it? Well, time had proven, Timothy. Read verse 22 with me. It'll be up on the screen. Paul said to the Philippians, you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served me in the gospel. This is a good word for all of us. Paul won Timothy to Jesus Christ. Paul discipled Timothy. Paul worked alongside Timothy at this point for well over a decade, maybe two decades at this point. And Paul had poured into Timothy, yet Paul did not play favorites with Timothy. What did he do? As a, a spiritual father, before he could endorse Timothy and release Timothy, he proved Timothy. 
But, you know, Scripture says twice in the book of 1 Timothy, it warns against um, releasing or ordaining or laying hands on people and dispatching them to a ministry prematurely. And especially, and I know this, I'll, I'll tell you a secret here. Um, my pastor should not have hired me when he hired me. This, I, I was saved in 94. He brought me on part-time in 96, full-time in 97. He retired in 2002, and I was the lead pastor. I'd only been saved eight years, and I was pastoring 300 people and actually thought I knew what I was doing. <laughs> and so did they for a little bit. <laughs> the reality is, is it was premature, and I made a lot of mistakes because I wasn't proven and when, when you put somebody in a proven place, uh, an unproven place in the kingdom, and yet they have say-so and some semblance of authority or leadership, what happens is they, they have the position, but they don't have the maturity. And that's, that's something that Paul wasn't going to allow with Timothy. And he was able to say, you know I've proven Timothy. What was cool is Timothy was saved just shortly before um, the church at Philippi was founded. Like the first journey that Paul went on with Timothy was just weeks after Timothy was saved. And the first place that they stopped was Philippi where they met Lydia and the women that were praying on the side of the river. And those were the first converts. Timothy may have very well been there for the baptisms of those very first converts in Philippi. So Paul could say to them, y'all knew him when he was a young gun. You knew him. You saw him back then. And now here we are 10, 15, 20 years later and you know that he's been proven. So if you are here tonight and you've got more zeal than you have opportunities, I'm going to encourage you. It's not always a numerical age, by the way. Sometimes it's just how old you are in the Lord or how mature you are in the Lord. I know some people have been saved 60 years and might as well be wearing spiritual diapers because they haven't matured in the Lord. I've met other people that have been saved maybe five years and they've got a maturity on them that makes you say, wow, what, what's going on there? It's just amazing. But the reality is, is that uh, when, when Paul got to this point, he was sending A, a man that was very beneficial to him, and B, somebody that they could have confidence in. So if you're here tonight and your zeal is outpacing your opportunities, take, just take a moment and just internalize and, and, and get humble with the Lord and, and just maybe even get in his presence and say, thank you, Lord, that the doors aren't open yet. And thank you for working on whatever part of me is not quite ready. Get me ready for the time when the door opens. Uh, most of us that are pursuing the Lord have far greater vision than we do actuality. There's stuff that I've had on my heart for 25 years that I want to see the Lord do, and, and he's just not led me to that place yet. And I don't want to get bitter with him. He doesn't owe me anything, but the reality is it's probably on some level an issue of maturity. Can you receive that? doesn't mean he's scolding us for being immature. He's just saying not yet. And the reality is, is if we are mature, we will say not yet. Okay, then I'll wait. Thank you, Lord. It's, we'll prove our immaturity if we say, what do you mean not yet? Get out of the way. I'll make it happen on my own, Lord. Now, nobody's ever said that with their lips, but they've said it with their lives before. So time had proven Timothy. Um, Paul valued Timothy. Jesus owned Timothy. And bottom line is the Philippians needed Timothy. So Paul says this in verse 23. I'm hoping to send him, therefore, just as soon as I can see how it will go with me. And I trust that in the Lord that I shortly, that shortly I myself will also come. So this is all I want to say about this, and then I want to move on to Epaphroditus. It was going to cost Paul 
to release Timothy. It was going to cost him big time. It was his father-son relationship, so he had nobody closer than he had Timothy. Timothy and he were friends. It wasn't just, okay, I led him to the Lord. I'm his spiritual father. He's my spiritual son. They were actually friends. They had traveled together. They had endured ministry hardships together. They had been persecuted together. They had been delivered together from those persecutions. So they had formed deep relationship. And Paul is saying to Timothy, the Lord wants you to go 800 miles from Rome to Philippi, and you're going to serve the people there. Now, if I'm Timothy... And the Bible doesn't say this. I'm just saying it could be possible that Timothy would have said, I don't want to leave you, Father Paul, you know, whatever he called him. I don't, I, I don't, I don't want to leave you. Why don't we send so-and-so? Why don't we send this one? And, and, and I love the Philippians, Paul, but I, I just, I, I don't want to leave you here in jail on your own. And Paul would look at Timothy and he'd say, I can't send any of these other yahoos. They're all living for themselves. I need to send you because you're the only person I know that when you arrive there, you'll be genuinely concerned for their welfare. I don't ever want to be in the yahoo group. We all have moments of weakness, and I'm not going to tell you that any of us execute 100 times out of 100 and living, uh, refusing to live for ourselves. But there's got to come a breaking time where you are no longer the center of your own orbit, where you make other people orbit around you and situations orbit around you and plans orbit around you. And you, you, you're, if you're living that way, you're so unhappy. And if you're, you're not unhappy, I promise you, the people orbiting around you are very unhappy. And so what the Lord wants to do is he wants to take us out of the Yahoo group and he wants to put us into the sanctified group where we're able to say, um, it's just not about me. Let the Lord make it about you. By faith, wait until the day the Lord makes it about you. By the way, let me tell you when that day will be, and you'll actually be there. The Bible says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, and it's not a judgment for our sins. It's actually a reward. It's a setting of reward. It's, a, it's a, an Olympic metaphor. It's the Bema seat where the judges who would pass out the wreaths, we would call them medals in our day, they would give those rewards to those that ran their races or won their matches. And the Bible says that every single one of us Christians is going to appear before the Lord individually, separately, with nobody with us, and we're going to be rewarded for the things that we did with our lives, the things done in the body. That's the day where he's going to make it all about you. And if, if we can live with that in mind, we can exit the pressure to make it all about us now. Because by the way, if you make it all about you now, there won't be much to be made of you then. And so I, listen, y'all know that? I wasn't planning on dealing with this, but I just, there's a little grace on it. So just want to encourage you, you're going to be rewarded. A lot of people get super spiritual and they say, well, man, it's not about the rewards. That's cheesy motivation. I just love Jesus. Well, the Jesus that you love talked more about rewards than anybody else. Jesus said a lot about rewards. So they may not be important to you, but they need to become important to you because they were very important to him. And there's something in the heart of the king that wants to see you on that day. Because remember, he said it's more blessed to give than to receive. And so he wants to give on that day. He wants to give to you. And when we say, oh, it's not about rewards, he's like, no, it actually is for me. I love to give. 
And so on that day, if you will deny yourself here and, and live for his glory here and make the most out of opportunities here and break the orbit around you here, then he's going to reward you on that day. And it's coming. It's un, unavoidable, undeniable. Uh, Timothy, Paul, Epaphroditus, who we're about to talk about, they all knew they had an appointment with them there. And so I want to remind you in, in the manifold temptations of this life to live for a lot of things. I mean, there's probably a hundred things that called your name to, for you to live a little part of your life for it today. There's that take up your cross daily, deny yourself. That's still in the gospel. Deny yourself. Deny yourself the temporary so you can just revel in the eternal when that time comes. All right, let's get down to Epaphroditus. So Timothy was was the proven son, Epaphroditus. Any, if anybody's expecting children, that's a name to avoid for your firstborn son, <laughs> Epaphroditus. I had to listen to the Bible on tape years ago just to hear how, to, how do I pronounce that? I mean, that is, that's one of those names, but he is an amazing man. And we're going to spend the last 20 minutes and we're going to learn about him. If you've got to go before then, again, you, you never offend me. Um, Epaphroditus is the sacrificial servant. Timothy's the son, the proven son, the man of character, the man whom Jesus owned, the man who was loyal and, and, and with Paul and willing to, to do whatever it took to be a blessing to him. Epaphroditus is similar, but it's a little bit different vein because Epaphroditus and Paul don't have that same closeness of relationship. But Paul is going to actually devote more words to Epaphroditus than he does to Timothy. So let's walk through this. First of all, let me just give you this. Epaphroditus was exemplary. He says, Paul says, I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier, your messenger, and minister to my need. He's got four things I'm going to cover right there in that thing. So let me tell you who Epaphroditus is. Again, Paul's sitting in prison. He can't eat unless somebody brings money to buy food. He can't have any clothing unless somebody provides for the clothing. He can't get anything unless somebody, he's 100% dependent on other Christians taking care of him. And he's the apostle Paul, and you'd think he'd have people clamoring to take care of him. But that wasn't the case. As a matter of fact, I believe it's in this letter that he says, you know how nobody met my needs except you. I think he says that at the church at Philippi in chapter number four. And so Paul was not only confined, but he was struggling in that confinement. So Philippi gets word, the Philippian Christians get word, and there's a guy in their church named Epaphroditus. And we don't know anything else really about him except that the church dispatched him to take the money to Paul. Now, they, they couldn't wire it, they couldn't mail it, it, it wasn't on a, on a you know, card to be swiped. It wasn't a gift card. It was cash money. And so whatever that amount was, it was collected there in Philippi and Epaphroditus and probably others. Paul typically made it a habit of sending a group when there was a large sum of money for accountability's sake. So Epaphroditus is the main guy. And as he's going to bring the money to Paul, we're going to find out he gets gravely ill. But before we get to that point, let me tell you what we see in this guy. By the way, he, he never preached a sermon that we know of. He didn't have a position. He wasn't a leader in the church. He didn't have clout. He didn't have status. We're not told of any signs, wonders, miracles. He's a guy. He's a guy in Philippi. He's the Philippi guy. 
He was saved, first thing, he was saved. Paul says, I, I'm gonna be sending Brother Epaphroditus back to you. Um, did any of y'all get groomed in churches where you called people brother and sister? Raise your hand if you did that. I did, yeah. It's like, we, man, you didn't call anybody, especially if they were older than you. I called uh, Barney Kabaki. Barney Kabaki, I was 27, and he was 150. I mean, he was, he was, he was an elderly man, sweet gentleman. And right after I came on part-time staff, I made the mistake of calling him Barney. I made that mistake once. And he let me know in uncertain terms. Let me tell you how he did it, too. It was deeply uh, piercing. I said, hey, Barney. He was sitting in his wheelchair, and I just reached my hand in his shake. He said, hey, Barney. And he looked at me and goes, Brother Jeff. And I was like, because ah, I knew immediately I had left out the brother. And that pause right before he said, Brother Jeff, just cut me to the core. Well, this is Brother Epaphroditus. doesn't flow like Brother Barney, but if Brother Epaphroditus, he was saved. I don't want to take it for granted that everybody knows what that means. Saved, born again. You know, we, we, we have all sorts of terms theologically justified. Um, the reality is, is that Although we live in the South, I have to do a myth buster here. Just because you were born in the South and, you know, you obey a couple of moral codes doesn't mean you're saved. Um, there has to come a time in your life where you recognize that you fall into the same sinking ship that the rest of humanity is in, and that's the ship of sin, and that by nature and by choice, you were born into the world as a sinner. And... Um, it, it wouldn't take me 20 seconds to convince you of that, and I don't think I have to in a, in a group like this, but attached to that sin is a penalty. And that penalty is eternal separation from a holy God. But that holy God is also the God of love and doesn't want you to be separated from him for all of eternity and doesn't want him to be separated from you because he actually really, really loves you even though you're a sinner. And I'm talking prior to your conversion. And so... Knowing the full need and the scope of mankind, before the foundation of the world, there was what I call an inner Trinitarian conversation between Father, Son, and Spirit. And the resulting uh, um, effort was this, that Jesus leaves heaven, comes to earth, takes upon the form of a human, and lives as a man sinlessly. Just grasp that. Never sinned. Not a thought, not a word, not a deed. Never um, and at the same time, the Bible says he grew in wisdom and stature. And so it wasn't just that he was divine and it was no sweat. He, he, he obeyed the Father in everything. And at the end of 33 years after he presented himself as the Savior and the Lord and the Messiah, the response of the people was to kill him. But it really wasn't the people that killed him because Isaiah 53 says it pleased the Father to bruise the Son because the plan from the foundation of the world was that he would be the lamb slain, the sacrificial lamb. So the perfect, spotless uh, lamb of God with no blemish, who is Jesus Christ the Lord, willingly laid his life down on a cross as a substitute. So he bled and died to fulfill the penalty to pay for all sin. And so when we come into this place where we acknowledge that we have sin that must be paid for, Ultimately, you probably didn't calculate it this way, but here's the way it works out. There's only two that can pay for your sin. Only two. 
Jesus, who had no sin of his own to die for, or you. You can pay for your sin. You can pay for your sin for all of eternity. You will always be paying, but never paid off. And so that, that reality brings us to a place where we recognize that Jesus is our only hope. And so at some place in your life, you have to recognize that you're not the exception to the rule, that the wrath of God abides upon those that are outside of Jesus Christ. It doesn't come later. The Bible says the wrath of God abides on them now. And it's just a, a breath away from finding those that die outside of repentance. But when you do repent, you are justified before God. When you accept Jesus Christ as the Lord of your life, the Bible says it many different ways, but the easiest way and most familiar way is you're saved from your sin. You're saved from the wrath of God. You're saved from what we deserve because we earned it. And so Epaphroditus had come to this place where he had been saved. It wasn't an old gospel. It's the same gospel that you must be saved by, the same gospel that I was saved by. And when we do that, we actually enter into the family of God. And so when I look out here and I see the ladies, those are my sisters. I'm married to my sister, amen? Sounds weird, doesn't it? Amy Lyle is my sister, but she's my wife. But for all of eternity, she's going to be my sister. And when I look at the men out here, I see my brothers. It doesn't matter what color your skin is. It doesn't matter what generation you're in. It doesn't matter how you vote in November every four years. None of that matters. We are spiritual siblings. Why? Because we all have the same papa. We're born from above. You say, well, Jeff, we know all that. Well, you might know all that, but the person sitting behind you might not. And so if you're here tonight and you've, 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 you've done enough religion just to make you nauseous and you're sick of that and you're ready to come into a place where you actually have a soul burst and you're renewed and you're transformed and you're pardoned because it's not just some technicality that they write in the records of heaven. You actually become a new creation in Jesus Christ. Old things pass away. All things start becoming new. It's a transformational uh, transaction. And so Epaphroditus had had that. He was saved, but he was also helpful because saved people should be. <laughs> um, he, he was called Paul's fellow worker. So dude shows up sick in Rome and he recovers at some point. He either served Paul before he got sick or he served Paul after he got better. But Paul's able to look at Epaphroditus and he's able to say, me and him are doing the same thing. We're just doing it different ways. Because Paul was an apostle and Epaphroditus was a no-name. And what I love about the kingdom of God is that the Lord is not impressed with the apostles more than he is with the no-name. Why? Because all the, all the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And, and, and he was a fellow worker, and Paul knew that. Paul's able to say that he looks at Epaphroditus and says, yeah, me and him are on the same team. And so one of the things that that helps all of us do, because I can tell you something. Um, let me not assume anything. There have been occasions over the years, matter of fact, this week, today even, talking with a guy who was confessing now that God has given him a platform of influence in the kingdom, he said, the first thing I want to do is start publicly confessing that I used to covet being on the platform so I could be the man with a microphone. And he's just, he's, he's, you know, purging himself of these former ways. And he's saying, I want you to know that that's who I used to be. And that's why God didn't give it to me. And it wasn't until he repented that God was able to do that kind of work in his life. But the, the true thing is, is most people will never be on a platform, nor should it matter. Because most of the gospel ministry, most of the work that Jesus has assigned us to do does not take place on a platform a couple of times a week. 
because the fields are out there and the need is out there. We come together, we gather for encouragement, edification, and worship. We scatter to do the work. And so Paul looks at Epaphrodites and he says, yep, same team, same mission. Then he called him a fellow soldier. So Epaphroditus was committed. I like this. I'm just curious. I'm almost out of time, so y'all can exhale. But How many of y'all, come on, let's just be honest. How many of y'all love the soldier concept in the kingdom? Anybody besides me? I like that, man. That's, that's you know, I'm married to a lover. She's just a Jesus lover. And I listen, I love Jesus, but I'm, I'm not going to stand up here and lie. If Jesus, on most days, on most days, if Jesus said, hey, Jeff, we can sit down, we can have a cup of coffee, I'm just theorizing, and we can have a cup of coffee and chat, or Jeff, me and you can go conquer that hill up there and kill Goliath. What do you want to do? I'm like, where's my sword? Right? Hold the coffee. We got, Goli- we got giants to kill up there. Why? Because that's just the way I'm wired. And Epaphroditus was not just a worker, not just a brother, but a soldier. What does that mean? It means he was disciplined, he was intentional, he was reliable, and he had endurance. You need to grasp those words. Your, your children, and if you have them, grandchildren, they need to know what it means to be a soldier of Jesus Christ. And let me tell you why. Because the war is getting hotter. It's getting longer. It's getting deeper. It's getting more vicious. It's getting more vile. It's coming and encroaching in deeper and deeper levels. And to be a soldier and, and endure is not going to be plan B. It, it's, it's going to have to be plan A. By the way, because you and I have been pretty much groomed, unless you're from a different part of the world, we have had it so easy as Christians in the United States, and, and in the Bible Belt especially. You know, I, when, when I touch base with people overseas and I hear what they deal with, I, I, it's not infrequently I say, am I even saved? I'm like, I got upset in traffic the other day, and I'm not being uh, insincere here or... or flipping and that sister got her hand talking about a lady in the middle east got her hand thrust into a paper paper shredder because she had held a bible true story a paper shredder an industrial paper shredder took took her well about to the wrist because she held a bible that's what it is to be a soldier and friends listen Kill the whiny, complainy, vacillating wimp in you. Kill him or her. Say, Jeff, I'm offended. Well, kill that too. (laughs) Because that's part of the problem. We can't bring glory to Jesus if we're offended at every single thing that comes our way. You're going to get offended? Who told you you had the right to never be offended? I'm getting off track. I better help me, Holy Spirit. He was committed, he was helpful, he was saved, and he was a servant. Paul said this, he's your messenger and minister to my need. And what Paul's referring to is, hey, Philippians, I know you sent Epaphroditus to me, and he got here, and he's ministering to my need. He brought the money, he brought the offering. He's your messenger, he's my minister, and I'm going to send him back to you. Now, verses 26 through 27, I got six minutes. Epaphroditus was also others-focused. Remember what we said about Timothy? 
Here we've got it again. It's boom, boom. There's only two examples that he's given. It's Timothy and Epaphroditus, and they both share this other's orientation. He said, he's been longing for you all. Epaphroditus is longing for his homies back there in Philippi. He's been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. And Paul says, indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I love this. This is mind-blowing to me. This is amazing. So Epaphroditus travels 800 miles to get to Rome. He gets sick either right when he gets there or along the way. Paul is in close enough proximity. He said, my brother almost died. Now, we use that statement pretty flippantly. I'm starving to death. I'm so tired I could die. We, we, you know how we use that. But I want you to go back 2,000 years and the medicinal world and the, uh, it just hadn't evolved yet. And people would die, literally, Paul's saying he got up to death's door, but God had mercy on him. People usually didn't get, get a second chance after they approached death's door, but God had healed Epaphroditus, but he didn't heal him instantly. He didn't heal him on, you know, day one. Don't think for a second that Paul, who knew how to raise the dead, didn't pray for healing on Epaphroditus. And the Bible indicates that that healing did not come immediately. And in fact, it, things got worse and worse and worse up to the very point of death. That'll make you slow down before you tell somebody that they're not healed because they don't have faith. Shot block. Paul the Apostle did not instantly heal Epaphroditus. He did get healed, but not before he approached death's door and God had mercy on him. But this is what I want to get at. Epaphroditus is dying. He's dying. And look where his focus is. He's longing for the people at Philippi and he's been distressed because he was worried about them worrying over him. It blows my mind. I'm just going to probably have to quit here. Um, I, I want to be delicate yet direct with this. It is within human nature that when life turns dark, hard, and sour, we not only make it about us, we want everybody else to also. We have to break out of that. We cannot live as the eternal victim. We have to recognize that God did not even spare his own son, Jesus, from the realities of suffering on planet Earth. And we can't cry foul when we experience our own allotment of trouble on Earth. And what is amazing is if we will, if we will abide, then Jesus within us, Holy Spirit more particularly within us, will bring the nature of Jesus forth from us. And in our suffering, we will actually be transformed to where we will, we will entrust our well-being to God, but we will actually be enabled to make it about others. We can actually overcome our own drama, our own pain, our own dark place. It doesn't mean that you can't pour out your complaint to the Lord because that's all over the book of Psalms. But what I'm saying is this, most of us would have been not moved at all if Epaphroditus, you know, had written his own epistle saying, woe is me. How did God let this happen to me? 
Here I am trying to serve the Lord, traveled 800 miles through danger, toils, and snares, only to arrive sick, and now I'm almost dead. What, what is happening to me? Don't you? He didn't say any of that. The testimony of Paul is, yeah, he was actually concerned because he thought y'all might be worried about him. I need some Epaphroditus. Anybody else? Anybody need any Epath in them? I need a little Epath. Last thing, really, three minutes. Come on. Epaphroditus was to be honored, verse 28 and 29. Paul says this, I'm the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. What can we get from that? It's very simple. Paul says, he's better now. I'm going to get him back home to you as soon as I can so that y'all aren't worried, he's not worried, and I'm not worried about him and y'all worrying. He says, I want you when he comes back home to receive him in the Lord with all joy, and I want you to honor not only Epaphroditus, but all people like that. Look at Paul pastoring. He's pastoring them. He's saying, hey, by the way, here's a, here's a teaching moment. When he comes back into town, I want you to honor him the way I'm honoring him. Let's not take one another for granted ever again. You'll have to be consciously committed to that. In the kingdom, in, the, in this church, in the church in general, in our families, I dare you to start saying thank you again for the stuff that you assume your spouse or children or parents will, will do because that's their job. I just dare you. A little double dog dare if it's needed, but I, I just dare you to start saying thank you for stuff that, oh, that's their job. I do my job. She does her job. Kids sometimes do their job. Um, we take for granted people. I'm doing a funeral tomorrow. I'm going to close with this because it's time. I'm doing a funeral tomorrow, and Linda's life came to an end after a long time of suffering. She didn't get her healing. She got certain levels of healing, but she never got her full restoration. She praised God more when she was sick and struggling than she ever did when she was alive. And one of the, the joys of pastoring through some very difficult years, and Linda was a part of the church at that time, would be to get the woman who lost all of her functionality and mobility one day in a garden. She knelt, knelt down to plant her garden and never got back up. It was one of the most rare forms of a neurological muscular thing. And she felt like her job was to keep Pastor Jeff encouraged. Not everybody's a Linda, but everybody's important to the Lord. And you don't lose anything by honoring people. When you enter into a lifestyle of honoring others, not because of what they can do for you, but because of who they are, made in the image of God, image bearers of God Almighty and precious to Him, when we honor people for that reason, um, I'm going to tell you, inwardly, things begin to shift. You tap into something in the kingdom, in the spirit, when you intentionally start living for honor because it is so counterculture that God says, that's a girl who gets my heart and I can entrust more of myself to her in the sense of blessing, in the sense of favor, in the sense of opportunities because you've aligned yourself with his heart. So let's stand together. I am, I'm out of time. I'm actually two minutes over. How many times did I say I was gonna quit tonight? Four? It's about par for the course.
Let me just say this, because um, nobody's no nobody in here is assured of tomorrow, me, me included. I love you. I know I don't know all of you, but I get to love you. I get to love you. And the more I know you, the more I want to love you. And when you walk out of the doors tonight, I want you to know that you're important. That's not flattery. It's really, really good theology. You're important, not only to the Lord, but to others. And so walk out of here tonight with a sense of dignity on your life because God so desired eternity with you that he was willing to make a sacrifice that is immeasurable in order for that to be reality. When you walk out of here tonight, walk out of here as a daughter or a son of God. Keep your head up, not in pride, but in gratitude. So Father, in the name of Jesus, bless us as we leave. Keep us safe on the roads. Bring us back again with hearts more enlarged for worship the next time we meet in Jesus' name. Amen.